welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I am joined once again by Kevin Keep On Keeping On Hume. How you doing this week, Kevin? Keeping on, keeping on. Yeah, seven, seven, eight, nine days out from uh-huh. January 6th. My emotions have been swinging wildly uh, back and forth yeah. since then. How about you? Yeah, uh, same. Um, I mean, you know, uh, impeachment part two, uh, you know, <laughs> happened. Um, uh, uh, electoral boogaloo. Yeah. Um, ugh. Ugh. Um, did you see that uh, Nancy Pelosi wore the same dress uh, to last year's vote and this year's? Did you see that? Oh, no. Oh, no, I hadn't seen that. Yeah, I saw a post about it, and uh, someone was like, wait, she actually has an impeachment dress? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of fitting. It's a nice little black thing with, like, a little gold band at the top. It's kind of nice. Anyways, um, yeah, man, I don't know. Like, we just keep finding out more and more uh, about people, uh, you know, people getting arrested, people being investigated. Yeah. members of Congress being investigated or at least, you know, asked to resign and things like that. Is this, are um, you, are you referring to the, the QAnon Congresswoman who well, apparently gave tours of the Capitol? This is, I, I've only seen like headlines about this. I haven't even read this article yet. Is this the Lauren Bob, however you say her name? That sounds, that's yeah, from the Colorado. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I haven't heard about the. I've heard alleged tours of the Capitol. Maybe not from her per se, but okay. We don't want to. We don't want to slander uh, anybody. So <laughs> correct, correct. I mean, I I heard that she. I don't know. I, there's been so many different things that have come out about this that she, you know, tweeted about where Nancy Pelosi was and things like that. And I don't know, like, yeah, just so many different things that she, you know, I mean, Pelosi actually had to. Um, you know, put a threat out there about enforcing, you know, a fine for people who don't want to go through metal detectors because this, you know, she wants to, she's a very open carry Uh, gun type person and she didn't want to go. She basically said, Oh, that's not for me or something along those lines when had to go through a metal detector to go to the Congress floor. Uh, you know, so, uh, I don't think it's appropriate to have somebody, uh, on the Congress floor carrying a gun. Who's not a police officer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I agree. I, I know that, uh, probably a lot of these freshman class of, um, Republican congressmen and women are kind of in that, in that some of them are in that sort of extreme far right league. And yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, okay, you got elected, but I don't know if we need you to have a gun on the floor. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't know about. I, we I'm don't sh- even know I, about the cops. We don't even know about the, the cops in there, like having guns. I know, like, at least a bunch of them are under investigation for their possible, you know, role in it. I know that the one guy that the one officer who was seen giving selfies, uh, you know, with with some of the people that were in there uh has been under investigation i don't know if he's been fired or not but i know that he's been looked at yeah um you know i think it's i think it's scary that like it doesn't seem like it was super well organized but like what if it had been yeah i mean i feel like there definitely were some parts of it you you know there, there were people that slipped in that definitely were not you know of the same 
people that were much more like, now I'm in, now I'm going to go for things, you know, instead mm-hmm. of these or take you know, selfies everybody or just, just kind of yeah. running amok, you know, mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. the speaker's podium and things like that. No, like there were people that went in there and definitely were trying to do some things. We still don't know, you know, yeah. this is going to go on for so long and we're just, it's, yeah, who knows what else we're going to find out, but it's, it's scary, dude. Like this was like the dumbest thing and who knows how far this is going to go. Yeah. I, I did want to share that like on the on the positive side of my like massive swings back and forth, I did I did have um a bit of a um I found a bit of optimism in an unexpected place earlier this week, conservative talk radio. <laughs> oh yeah, I, dude. What's this? I was driving along in my very noisy, mostly reliable, at least for now, American Motors era Jeep, and I was fumbling for NPR, which is like what I always tune to when I'm in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, But I ended up uh, on this other uh, signal. Um, It was called uh, ACLJ Radio, curiously close to ACLU, only instead of of American Civil Liberties Union, it stands for American Center for Law and Justice, Law and Order. Um, (laughs) Anyway, it it was a group of men who had that that sort of smug shock jock slash sportscaster voices. I does my voice sound like that? I hope not. I don't think so. Um, uh, anyway, I um I braced myself for sort of open calls to like violent revolution, but what I found was something different. Um, these guys were sort of they were acknowledging begrudgingly that Biden won the election, um, and they weren't extremists by any means. And then they took a call from Oklahoma and I was like, Oh God, here it comes. But when that guy came on, um, I wasn't really happy with what he said. He, he was just basically like, Oh, what I really hope is that Trump resigns and Pence pardons him. And that'll really get the libs goat. And I was just like, Oh, "Oh." I mean, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but it was somewhat refreshing. And it was just kind of like a return to the, the old, I want to own the libs kind of thing instead of like, I'm going to like violently overthrow the government. So I was like, okay, like we can deal with you. Um, and don't get me wrong. Like, I think that kind of politics is toxic on both sides of the aisle. Um, and, but I guess what I'm saying is like, if, if, if most diehard Trumpers are out there, uh, if most diehard Trumpers out there are like that, as opposed to like, you know, Boogaloo boys or proud boys or, or whatever, um, like it's, it's not maybe as bad as, you know, what I've been seeing on my like very curated, um, doom scroll Apple right. news feed, right? Like right. we shouldn't assume that there are 75 million of these crazy people out there. Like just the same way that like, uh, it, what was it? Eight about eighty-one million voted for Joe Biden. There's like mm-hmm. eighty. There's not eighty-one million black flag waving uh, anarchists out there, right? right? So like, right. so that was it, it. Was it was this sort of roundabout way? And it was you know I didn't dis- I didn't agree with a lot of what they were saying, but I was just like, okay, all right. So like, <laughs> some people just you know uh, they want Trump for whatever reason, like taxes or, you know, they're religious or, which is so weird, but yeah, (laughs) but that's, that was my, that was my sort of kernel of hope. And and maybe I'm, um, maybe I'm being foolishly optimistic, but that was, that was sort of the high point. And then there were many, many low points where I was just like, Oh God. (laughs) I mean, okay. Like, you know, taking away that 10 Republicans, you know, voted in favor of impeachment. I feel like, you know, not everybody is this live or die by the party type, um, you know, 
uh, hardline left or right, you know, people, you know, I feel like most of the country is kind of stuck, you know, not stuck in the middle, but in the middle, mostly kind of, you know, go back and forth a little bit on how they are. Um, and are fairly just normal. Like these, these people that we see amplified on both the left and the right that are, um, you know, hardcore left, hardcore right, pushing these things that make the other side squirm, uh, are, are a fair microcosm, you know, like they're not huge. They're very small and both sides amp them up for fear. Yeah. And I mean, we in the media, like I got to take a look at like, like since, since last week, I've been thinking like, what, what do I do and how can I be better? And like, I think, you know, I have a role to play. I think we all do like and and the thing about t- these days is everybody is sort of a publisher. Like mm-hmm. I should try to be less inflammatory. Like, cause if I know it's going to get clicks, like you should also maybe, maybe don't share that Occupy Democrats post if it's like <laughs> ridiculous, you know? Um, and uh, yeah. And like, we got to stop. Um, we got to hold people accountable. I don't want to say that. Like, I, I don't want to give people a break and, and that don't deserve a break, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, there's been soul searching, but then I think, ah, then I get, then I flip, like, it's, it's like liberals do this all the time. Or we saw it after Trump. They're like, you know, with the publication of hillbilly elegy and like all this kind of hand wringing, like, Oh, well maybe, maybe we weren't nice enough to these people. And I mean, I think that's, there's, there's some truth there, but then it's also like, well, you don't have to be nice to people who are like straight up evil. Like you don't have to be nice to Ted Cruz. <laughs> um, uh, my favorite punching bag of, of yeah. late. Um, well, he's an easy target because he's an idiot. What are your thoughts there? I feel um, we have got to do something to break through all this misinformation on both sides. Um, you know, I would say that the the misinformation campaign largely is driven through conservative sources, but also, you know, I feel like a lot of it's targeted from online sources on both sides. You know, like Russia, I feel like definitely has had a role in in throwing things both ways, and we've just we've got to find a way to break through all this divisiveness to be able to try to find common ground again. Yeah. I think obviously the pandemic didn't help because we right. were already going into these bubbles and then, you know, everything kind of shut down and like, what else were you going to do? Um, except, you know, retreat into the internet. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I think, uh, I think the pandemic not only exposed massive inequality and, and problems, real problems in our country, because mm-hmm. there are tons of real problems in our country and, and income inequality is a huge driver of, I think, why people are upset on yeah. the left and the right, even though like a lot of right wingers would be like, oh, we don't we don't want income dis- redistribution. Like the thing is, I think I think I think that they're pissed off about cultural things like, you know, gay marriage and whatnot. But like, I think they're also pissed off because like a lot of them are struggling and that's. You know, to, to anyone, to probably you're probably not listening right now, but if you are, like, <laughs> that's a little bit about like what we're talking about with income redistribution. We're not talking about like, you know, just giving you a handout, which mm-hmm. I think could be uh, detrimental to the pro- productivity in the long run of like people, like if they just on the quote unquote on the dole or whatever. Yeah. But like, 
Like we're talking about the fact that it's just, it's, and life's not fair. And we know that. And like, yeah, you got to have personal responsibility, but like, it's ridiculous now. And it's, and it's, it's not fair by design. Like the people who are in, who have all the money, you know, lobby and they, they gather more and more power and more and more resources. And that's why a lot of the common people are struggling in this country. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's always that, that narrative. I don't know if it's a myth or not, but that narrative about, uh, most people are what, like two pay periods away from being middle-class and homeless, you know, yeah, that sort of divide between just like two missed pay periods can just make you be out on the street. We're a lot close. All of us are the vast majority of us are way closer to being homeless than we are to being a billionaire. But right. there's like the the reality TV and the stuff that we see, like that we're fed, that's not even necessarily like political, but it like reinforces this narrative of like, oh, like even though you are closer to being homeless than you are to being a billionaire, most of us, uh, there's this like you know the Horatio Alger thing in America where it's like, oh, like if you know I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a billionaire too, so I don't want to see people take money away from billionaires because. One day I'm gonna also be a billionaire. Right. This whole yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be a billionaire. Sorry. This whole idea that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like everybody, it, that that still gets passed around. You know that this whole thing that you can be a self-made person, like it doesn't really work that way, and people still you know use that narrative to take things away from people who need you know help. Yeah. Ah, lots of different thoughts. Um, and we're only a week out a, a week and some change. So like, there's going to be more stuff coming down the line. Um, yeah, you know, we've got an inauguration coming next week. Who knows what that's going to look like. And, and, uh, and, uh, and a, a president who's been impeached a second time. And what, yeah. you know, it seems like there were a handful of Republicans who voted to impeach, mm-hmm. which was a really big deal. I think that was like the largest margin that anyone's ever been that any, you know, and there's only been what the Trump was the third president to be impeached. And he was the only so. one to be impeached twice. Yeah. But like other impeachments, I think the two previous ones always broke down on like strict party lines, maybe right. one person flipped. Like this was a big deal that um, as, as many Republicans flipped as they did, we'll see how many in the Senate, like, I don't know if they have the votes to, to convict, but right. I don't think any president has been convicted. Um, no, I no think president Andrew, convicted. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's going to be a, a close one. I feel, I feel like everybody's being guarded about it because it's, it's a massive thing. It's a big, huge deal. What happened and it's going to take place after he's left office. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a shit show that's going to keep giving. We're living through history. I mean, I guess we're always living through history, but I think we're living through a particularly exciting slash terrifying chapter of history yeah. here for our country. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty fucking terrifying. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, coming up on the podcast, we have some lighter fare. Uh, staff writer Benjamin Schneider talks about his latest cover story, which uh, covers some of the more colorful and unique modern architectural characters in the Bay Area and the way these buildings may have a role to play in the um, in the um, problem of of 
the Bay Area's housing crisis and just the role that they're going to play in our in our lives for years to come. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. with Benjamin Schneider, staff writer for SF Weekly. He's here today to talk about his latest cover story, Welcoming the New Neighborhood Characters. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for those in the listening audience who have heard you here before or who have not heard you here before, um, they may or may not know, you are something of an urban planning nerd. Correct. Is that, is that a? Is that, yeah, uh, that is a fair description. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, before we even launch into talking about this week's story, I mean, why don't you tell us just a little bit about like the passion you have for for this and, and why it's so why it's so interesting to you? Well, I, I've always really loved cities, um, and so I, I guess once I discovered, um, basically in college, that there's a whole field of study devoted to, to understanding how cities work. Um, I really gravitated towards that and um, ended up majoring in urban studies in college. Um, and I think what I find so interesting in, in this subject of urbanism is just that you can connect things that are happening in um, the built environment, um, whether it's buildings, streets, subways, um, you know, sewer systems, anything like that, um, these, these physical things have a huge bearing on people's lives, um, both in their material sense, you know, whether they have decent housing, um, but also in a sort of more uh, experiential sense. You know, these environments um, that we live in, cities, uh, pretty much define, um, you know, the kinds of people that we can interact with, the kinds of experiences we have in terms of um, scenes, cultural scenes, um, all that sort of good stuff, it's very tied into the physical realities that, that, um, define a city. So that's kind of where I, how, how I approach all this stuff. Got it. Got it. Well, it's cool. I, I think it's a really cool thing that, that you have your degree in, in urban studies. I think that's awesome. Um, so in Bay area housing debates, um, people talk a lot about preserving neighborhood character. And that's, you know, that's in the title of, of this, this week's cover story. Um, but what does that really mean? And why is that an issue when it comes to building more housing? Yeah, I think you have to look at this idea of neighborhood character on several different levels. So I think the, the way that it's, um, it's meant on the most surface level is um, kind of an aesthetic and visual idea. Um, that when you're going to build a new building in a neighborhood, it should fit into the visual um, existing character of that neighborhood. Uh, so that means, you know, if it's a neighborhood full of single-family houses, then um, you'd expect a new building to also be a single-family house. Uh, if those houses are all 100 years old, 
Um, maybe people around would insist that the new building looks just like the old ones as well. Um, and so that's, that's one way of thinking about it. Uh, but what you see, um, if you study urban studies and, um, you know, people who carefully follow, uh, the debates around building new housing in places like the Bay area where it's so expensive and there's a huge housing shortage, um, is that neighborhood character kind of becomes a euphemism for other things that people are concerned about in their neighborhood. Um, I, I happen to believe the biggest one of those things is parking and traffic. Um, people are, get really nervous um, that, you know, if you add an apartment building that has 20 units to a neighborhood that already has difficult parking, um, you know, the, those people are going to add to the competition for street parking. So that gets people very riled up. Um, I think definitely there's an element of uh, fear of the other, um, it can often be kind of a, a racial fear, racist fear, um, that especially if you're talking about affordable housing, uh, the new people who are going to move in um, are are going to be bringing drugs and crime, all these sort of dog whistles about, um, you know, people who are, that are associated with these stereotypes of, of lower income people and, and people of color. Um, the same can be said for, for housing for formerly homeless people. Uh, you hear those kinds of tropes over and over. So basically, neighborhood character is uh, its a loaded term, I think. There's a lot of ways you can look at it, um, and yet it is, you, you hear it a lot still. Um, and I think it's always interesting when you hear that term to kind of interrogate uh, what, what the speaker means by it. So there is a certain style of housing in the Bay Area that seems to turn a lot of people off. Um, can you talk about that style or that grouping of styles and, and why you think it turns people off? Yeah. So in that, that surface level understanding of, of neighborhood character, um, I think a lot of times that gets invoked when people are responding to uh, new buildings that are in this, this uh, neo-modernist style of architecture, um, which y you might have heard kind of other ways of describing it. Um, some people would call it like a gentrification style. Uh, I've heard the word um, uh, fast, casual architecture. My, my friend uh, <laughs> Kristen Caps at City Lab came up with that one. Um, I, it's kind of like a you know it when you see it kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the term gentrification architecture is also pretty, uh, <laughs> you could say, problematic because often that term is applied to affordable housing developments. Um, this is just sort of the default uh, architectural style of our time. Um, and it's rooted in architectural modernism, which emerged in the early 20th century and basically was all about really functional design, um, a lot of hard angles uh, and and uh, no ornaments, no, no decorations on the facades of buildings. So you end up with a lot of sort of simple geometric square structures. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's the um, often when people are concerned about this sort of visual character of a neighborhood being uh, uh, harmed, it's it's those kinds of buildings that are being built that people are responding to. So, um, I mean, some of those things that you just mentioned, no ornaments, right angles, um, you know, I, I think of some of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's most uh, famous 
pieces. Uh, I think of mid-century modern. I think of Danish design. I think of um, what's called sometimes called brutalism, um, and those are th those are kind of coming back into vogue. I mean, what what? But these things that I, you know it when you see it, like you said. I mean, it's this is no this, these are not these are not Frank Lloyd Wright houses. These are not <laughs> mid-century modern. You know, a Danish uh furniture type things it's it's different isn't it what is it about this stuff that pisses people off well i think the biggest difference um between what you see today and the the architectural movements you just described is age itself um it's a lot easier to appreciate architecture and design um 50 years out and i think that's what we're seeing with mid-century modern um I, I remember uh when i was a little kid um my mom hated mid-century modern architecture and would always kind of point it out to me. Um, and I think that was sort of a, a pretty widely held belief, say, in the early 2000s and the 90s. Uh, mid-century modern was seen as really kind of cheapo. Um, same with brutalism, too. Uh, you know, soulless. Mm -hmm. and, um, I think it's only in recent years that there's been much more appreciation for those kinds of designs. Um, yeah. And, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Don, Donald Draper. Don Draper. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, when you look at new apartment buildings, too, um, or, or new houses, for that matter, uh, it's, it's easy to paint with a broad brush when you're talking about neo-modernism. I think there are examples that are um, more or less successful um, buildings that are, are built with more or less care. And um, I think that makes a big difference, too. Uh, in this conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I, there, there's a phrase in your story early on, um, that that's great. Um, Grace, uh, our other staff writer commented on it, uh, cause she was reading through the, the copy. Um, uh, you, it's criticized, uh, some of this stuff is criticized as looking like an Apple product. I thought that was a good description, especially here in the Bay area. Yeah. Thanks. I, I think, um, What's happened is that neo-modernism, um, this minimalist, uh, boxy design, I think has become really associated with the rise of the tech industry and gentrification in a lot of sort of uh, sometimes lower income, sometimes not that lower income, uh, kind of inner core urban neighborhoods in the Bay Area, whether that's the Mission District in San Francisco or around, um, you know, downtown Berkeley, around downtown Oakland, um, Hayes Valley, uh, all these kinds of really hip areas that are very dense, very old. Um, and it, it seems to me that uh, a lot of the problems that are associated with the rise of the tech industry um, and gentrification itself are kind of projected onto a lot of these buildings. Um, and so they become sort of a symbol for a lot of the the pain and anger that people have related to the way that, that the San Francisco Bay area is changing. Yeah, totally. Um, so in this article, you profile three new buildings, um, that add character to their respective neighborhoods. And I gotta say, um, often in a way that is, is not, um, uh, looking like an iPhone. Um, can you talk about these, um, these buildings here and uh, what, what makes them so interesting and unique? So the idea for this article was, was that um, new buildings don't have to be seen as 
intruders or as sort of an affront to the existing buildings, the existing culture and vibe of a neighborhood. Um, and I, I thought these three buildings that I, I looked at were, were good examples of fairly recent um, new buildings that um, I think very clearly add to the to the neighborhoods that they're part of. And um, let, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll say more about, about them and, and then I can talk about sort of the, the big picture um, things that they kind of have in common. But uh, the, the first one is um, the Enclave Apartments in downtown Berkeley, which just opened um, this fall. And it's a, a student dorm um, right, right near Berkeley's campus. And um, it's pretty hard to describe in sort of one sentence, but it's essentially a Moorish palace style design with um, big turrets, um, vaulted windows, uh, some mosaic inlays. Um, I think if you're looking for a particular kind of historical architectural design, you'll probably find some reference to it in there. Uh, and then, of course, the big, really, really unusual aspect of this building is that the first three stories are um, essentially a faux stone cliff. Right. Um, that's that's made to look like an actual rock face. Like um, it's a like it's a Moorish castle that's been built out of like right. an existing you know <laughs> a, a rocky um, uh, escarpment or bluff or whatever you would call it. I'm exactly. not great with those kinds of terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's like a castle on top of a mountain. The mountain, yeah. a built-in part of the building. Um, and it's just it's just really unusual. Um, it's unlike any building I've ever seen. Um, and uh, Except I, maybe I, outside of like Disneyland. <laughs> right, so that's exactly it. I mean, uh, you look at it and you're like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. But then um, as I, you know, talk to an architectural historian, uh, Mitchell Schwarzer at, at California College of the Arts, you know, he reminded me this is not uh, exactly an exception in, in California. Um, we've got Disneyland. We've got Children's Fairyland. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, there was a whole uh, whole architectural movement that was really big in, in um, the Bay Area and also in Hollywood uh, of the storybook style, which is basically houses modeled after um, something you, you'd imagine in Hansel and Gretel. Uh, or another fairy tale um, that have these sort of like false rustic elements to it, like peeling, um, you know, stucco that appears to be peeling and kind of um, rocky foundations that kind of seem like they're, uh, they're breaking down um, and just really whimsical design flourishes. And essentially the Enclave Apartments is doing that kind of thing but at a much more giant scale, at a scale of, um, you know, a fairly high-density apartment building, which is kind of the idea of, of what new housing in the Bay Area should look like, um, you know, if it's going to really make a dent in housing affordability and, and give the opportunity for a lot more people to live in these kind of downtown areas where they don't need to have a car, et cetera. So it, it is, it's unusual, but it's in conversation with um these historical architectural styles that are actually kind of familiar to us uh, Bay Area residents. And I think in that sense, you know, that that's what gives it this character that we can resonate with. Um, it's, it, it's not only unique, but it's kind of familiar in a certain way. And I think that's um, a cool chord to strike 
uh, if, if you're looking at how, how a building is interacting with its surroundings. Okay. Uh, tell me about uh, the other two. How could I forget? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so then there's 1645 Pacific, which is in Polk Gulch in San Francisco. And that one is from 2014. Um, and what's unique there is, uh, you know, it's a fairly standard kind of four or five story building. It does have a kind of a cool round bay window. Um, so it's kind of got a softer facade than a lot of surrounding buildings. And that's sort of unique. But the, the really unique thing about it is that it's got these giant ornaments um, right above the, the doorway. There's um, essentially like a, a plant, an aloe plant that seems to hold up the bay window, that round bay window. And there's like a little baby cherub type face that's coming out of there. And then up above, towards the top of the building, there's this gigantic, probably 10-foot long female figure um, that's sort of lounging sideways on the side of the building um, and is shroud- also shrouded in all these plants. It kind of looks like a mermaid. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just these, um, again, really unusual little details that I think really catch the eye of, of passerby. Um, mm-hmm. And there aren't a lot of giant 10-foot ornaments of, of human figures uh, on buildings in San Francisco But there are a lot of buildings in San Francisco, like, for example, the Victorian houses that are so famous, or um, in a lot of outer neighborhoods, there's a lot of Spanish-style houses that have uh, medallions of bull's heads, other kinds of visual um, decorations that are kind of sticking out of the facade that um, I think this building kind of speaks to. And again, brings in some of those tropes, but in a new way, and... um, is, is I think uh, the, the architect told me it's a it's a building that he knows neighbors have pointed to and said we're next to that weird building uh, <laughs> in time you know a landmark the idea the idea is it doesn't stand out like crazy it's still part of the sort of architectural scene of the city yeah and then the third um, building that you you point to. Um, you note that it was assembled with the help of some artists who regularly attend Burning Man and work out of the um, American Steel uh, Complex that was a former steel production plant, I suppose. But now it's, you know, lots of people make huge sculptures there over the course of the year, and then they take it out to um, the desert in Nevada uh, in the, when is that, in September usually? It was canceled this year. Right, yeah, August or September. Um, yeah, that's right. So this building is in North Oakland, uh, not too far from the American Steel uh, Studios in West Oakland. And um, apparently the the developers of that building uh, basically, uh, they, they were actually pre-casting um, part of the structure of that building at that facility. Um, and uh, they, they seem to have kind of an open mind. So they uh, met some some artists there and just invited them to create some metalwork that would adorn this new building. Um, and the, the developers themselves already had this idea that um, the building would kind of be an artistic statement. Um, the sides of the building are um, imprinted with these uh, these symbols that are kind of stamped into the concrete, like hieroglyphs. And supposedly those are supposed to tell the story of industrialization. I don't mm-hmm. exactly see it, but it definitely 
is striking to see these symbols on the side of the building. Um, and then there's also murals uh, on the sides as well that were painted by um, this art collective. I think it's the Firehouse Art Collective next door, uh, led by Tom Franco, who is the brother of Dave and James Franco. Yeah, um, when when I read that, I didn't realize there was a third Franco. <laughs> this one's a bit more low key. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to speak for him. I didn't talk to him for this article, but that's what what uh, Dwight, the developer of this building, said. Um, and so I think you know this building highlights a couple other things. I mean, it's a building that uh, it, it brings in artwork uh, from this local art movement we have in the Bay Area, uh, Burning Man Art. I, I wish there was a better term for it. I mean, you could say large-scale installation, large-scale sculptural art. Um, Yeah. And uh, the builders invited um, neighbors to contribute art as well. Um, So I think that is another interesting idea of where you can find character. You can um, bring in artists and cultural movements that exist around you to actually make a mark on the physical building. and, you know, right now, um, it's cool, you know, it's, it's an interesting effect, but in 50 or a hundred years, that building will be a symbol of an art movement and a moment in time in that neighborhood when there were these sort of artist colonies around who knows what that neighborhood's going to be like in 50 or hundred years. I think it's, right. that's something that we often don't think about when it comes to, um, you know, the way buildings exist in space that the buildings are going to be there a lot longer than any of us, a lot longer than the people who live in that neighborhood right now. And so um, I think that's just an interesting thing to keep an eye on as you, as we think about how new buildings can fit into existing neighborhoods. Um, you know, what's their legacy going to be over time? How do they speak to the moment in which they're built? Um, and I think all three of the buildings that I looked at for this article, um, you know, they're, they're just doing something different. And I think they're saying something Um, interesting about where we are right now. And my hope is that there will be more architects that, um, you know, maybe they see this backlash to a lot of the neo-modernist architecture we have today. And we'll we'll just take that as an opportunity to do something new, um, to maybe engage with the community a little more in terms of bringing um, more kinds of art and decoration onto their building, not being afraid of decoration in the first place. and just just trying new things, being creative, having fun, uh, not taking architecture so seriously, as uh, uh, Alfred Twu, one of the people I spoke to for this article, emphasized. Uh, there, there's really no other business that is so straight-laced and intense as architects. And I think if, if it's going to loosen up, the Bay Area would be a good place for that to start. All right. Well, um, thanks for telling us about that story. Um, You can read that story online. It's called Welcoming New Neighborhood Characters um, or in print. The print headline is Welcome to the Neighborhood. Thanks again for joining us, Ben. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced by me, Nick Veronin. My inimitable co-host is Kevin Hume. Mike Huguenor is our audio engineer. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.